0: Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, November 11th, 2016. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Doug, Erica, Tiffany, and Gabby. Hey, guys.
1: Hello. Hello.
0: Hello. (laughs) We are are missing Elliot today, but he will be with us in spirit because he has recorded a segment for us on the use of uh, light in treating uh, the winter blues. So that is... um, one of our topics today, we're going to be doing Connecting the Dots, uh, Fighting the Winter Blues, Mental Health, and the Coming Vaccine Season. So we're just going to talk about some items in the news and uh, try to connect these topics and have a discussion around that. Um, I don't think we're going to touch on the, uh, on the U.S. election at all unless you guys feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> we could just rant, just rant for the whole show
2: no i think we can all just express our pleasure that hillary did not win yeah. <laughs> not to say that trump is going to be any saving grace but yay yeah.
0: <laughs> all right well let's uh let's talk about what we had planned i guess we'll we'll stay away from that for now um hmm. let's see uh so starting about the uh the winter blues something that everybody's uh pretty familiar with, uh, and I don't know, uh, how many people have experienced it, uh, in a, you know, uh, in kind of a marked way in a, in a dramatic way. Um, I know for myself, I live in an area where we have a pretty harsh winter. We get very little daylight, uh, and it usually, you get a little bummed out by the end of it, but it was, uh, a couple of years ago, I I felt it really strongly and I didn't expect it. Like I wasn't, expecting that to come on, but it was like February. Mm -hmm. I was just like, get me the hell out of here. (laughs) Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty interesting. Um, so it can happen, uh, you know, from personal experience. And I was curious if we have any listeners, uh, who have experience with that or maybe any anecdotal stories about it. Uh, if you want to give us a call, um, you just need a microphone for your computer and then on the, uh, sot radio page you can click the speak with the host button and give us a call and tell us your your story about the winter blues
2: tell us your sad story
0: yeah (laughs) yeah i don't
2: i don't know if i feel the winter blues like maybe around february march i start getting a little cabin fever but mostly it's just the feeling of disappointment that the summer is over because summer is my favorite
3: According to some studies, the worst months are January and February. Yeah,
2: like after the holidays when there's nothing to do anymore, <laughs> people will start settling into the house and they become kind of sad.
3: <laughs> they also did another study where there was an 11% spike in the number of depression diagnoses after the autumn time change, and apparently... In that study, it took like 20 weeks after the time change for the number of depression diagnosis to level off.
2: That's a long time. I That's know. like half yeah. of the year you're depressed.
4: <laughs> <laughs> okay, I know. Yeah. Well, I also think I the time like. change thing is just really bizarre.
0: With the daylight yeah. savings. Yeah. That, that makes a big difference. Like yeah. if
4: you get up and go to work and it's dark, and then you get out of work and it's still dark, <clears throat> I could see how that could cause some mental disturbances. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah, daylight
2: the, uh... daylight savings oh. time only started like during World War One, and I think Arizona and Hawaii they still don't do it, and uh, the well. In articles that I've read that said that uh the makers of barbecue grills and sports equipment and uh, like uh gas stations and that they're the ones who benefit like in the summertime with the extra hour but uh Other than that, there's really no benefit to anybody. And everybody, like every year around this time, there's a bunch of articles and people rant about how awful daylight savings time is. And they say, oh, it should be abolished. But there's never any moves in that direction. So I don't think daylight savings time is going to go anywhere.
4: Well, I think it's funny that two states in the United States just decide not to participate.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it is pretty bizarre, and it would be kind of hard to be like uh, active, you know, socially about that with all the things that are going on. Be like, mm-hmm. I'm a daylight savings time activist. <laughs> <laughs> Down with the system!
4: I'm gonna rebel and not set my clock back. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what the farmers should do because they
2: particularly hate daylight savings time.
4: Well, wasn't that one of yeah. the reasons it was created? That have more. Life, More time to farm.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, I
0: don't know. Which is so arbitrary. I mean, it doesn't change. The t- it just changes the clock. It doesn't change how many hours in the day you have. Yeah, like if you're life, a, you know? if
2: you're a <laughs> farmer, just wake up later <laughs> and then do what you have to do with your animals. Does it really matter what time it is?
3: Yeah, it was just an excuse to change it. It's just trans innovation and that's mm-hmm. it.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the uh, you know light playing a big role in uh, in how we feel, um, especially during the winter, but also during these transitional times. Um, shall we go to uh, to Elliot's clip? Uh, he's got some really good information uh, on what effect light has, you know, during the seasonal changes, and uh, and how you can actually help uh, and treat yourself in that
5: regard. Okay. Yes
2: from our resident light guru
0: Elliot
5: yeah <laughs> hey guys um, I'd just like to share some information on how we might be able to mitigate the effects of seasonal affective disorder um, so you know most people at this time of the year they start to feel depressed um, they're not getting any natural sunlight because they spend most of their time indoors and um, and this is generally when the immune system starts to go downhill as well um and this is usually attributed to uh, a lack of vitamin D um, you know there's there's no longer sunshine beaming every day and um, and you know vitamin D is renowned for its potent immune benefits um, there's a lot of people who supplement it in the winter time to, to counteract the lack of sunlight that they you know that that they miss out on um, and I'd like to say that I think that that's not necessarily the wisest idea, um, and there's a few reasons for that, which we will get into. Um, but first of all, you know, it's 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 best to understand a little bit more about the the topic itself. Um, so vitamin D, uh, it's technically not a not a vitamin. They're, scientists are now saying that it's more of a signalling molecule. It's uh, like a hormone that conveys information to the body um, about the external environment. And so, you know, lots of people talk about the benefits of vitamin D, but there's practically no one that actually talks about um, its counterpart, and that is cholesterol sulfate. So there is one researcher called Dr. Stephanie Seneff, and uh, she's a researcher at MIT, and she's probably the only only person who um, who is an expert on this subject. And um, so it actually turns out that both vitamin D and cholesterol sulfate are intimately tied together, and vitamin D um, is wholly reliant on the production of cholesterol sulfate for it to um, to work properly in the body. Um, so for context, when I say cholesterol sulfate, I'm talking about a molecule that is being sulfated by the body. There's a pathway in, in the body called the sulfation pathway, and, and um, in simple terms, it's when your body attaches a sulfur molecule to another molecule, and that means it's, it turns from cholesterol to cholesterol sulfate. That is sulfation. So um, as many of you probably already know, um, the body synthesizes vitamin D3, using Using uh, sunlight, so specifically UVB radiation, hits the skin and interacts with cholesterol in the skin, and this creates vitamin D3. So, what's important here is to understand is that yes, your body can create vitamin D3, but your body cannot transport that vitamin D three away from the skin as it is in its form. You know, it's really important to understand this because. Vitamin D3 can only be transported when it is in, in its sulfated form. Your body needs to sulfate vitamin D3 in order for it to get to the internal organs. Um, so, a rough overview of what happens is sunlight, as I said, penetrates the skin. It oxidises cholesterol to to produce vitamin D3. However, For vitamin D3 to be transported away from the skin to the internal organs, it needs needs to be made water-soluble in its sulfated form. Uh, The main problem here is that the body can't make vitamin D3 sulfate um, from vitamin D alone. Now, it relies on another molecule, and this is the molecule I was just talking about. It's called cholesterol sulfate. Okay, cholesterol sulfate is responsible... for converting the vitamin D produced in your skin to vitamin D3 sulfate. Once it's vitamin D3 sulfate, it can then be transported, okay? So it's not actually in its usable form until cholesterol sulfate comes along, alright? So, uh, in, in, in a natural environment, both vitamin D and cholesterol sulfate would always be present in the body at the same time. They're both um, produced in response to natural full-spectrum sunlight, UVA, UVB, and infrared radiation. Um, they are naturally coupled together, you you, you might say. Um, <coughs> so, cholesterol sulfate, its main function um, you know, is to convert vitamin D3 to vitamin D3 sulfate, but it also has a number of other functions in the body. Well, You know, what's most important is it's critical for optimal heart and brain function. Um, It's basically distributed to every single tissue and organ in the body. It protects the structure of red blood cells and it's absolutely essential to every single cell. Um, So, you know, it's really important stuff, this cholesterol sulfate. And we don't really ever hear about it. Um, So you might be asking, okay, if you need cholesterol sulfate to convert vitamin D to vitamin D sulfate, Then, how do we produce cholesterol sulfate? You know, how do we get more of this stuff? Well, you know, it's really quite basic. You just need three things. You need cholesterol, sulfur, and sunlight. Okay? A brief overview is sunlight, again, penetrates the skin and it stimulates the release of an enzyme called endothelial nitric oxide synthase. Uh I'll abbreviate it as Enos. Um, now Enos in response releases something called superoxide. This sharp burst of superoxide in response to sunlight um, actually oxidizes free sulfur in the body into sulfate. Now when you've got this sulfate um, you can you can make Or your body can attach it to cholesterol. So, sulfate and cholesterol attached together make cholesterol sulfate. Um, Now, what can happen is, or what, what does happen, let's say, is that some of that cholesterol sulfate that is produced in response to sunlight converts vitamin D3 to vitamin D3 sulfate. Um, however some of it is transported as cholesterol sulfate to the rest of the body to perform whatever job it needs to do um, now what's also interesting is if you understand anything about cholesterol you'll know that um, for cholesterol to be transported in the body it relies on um, lipoproteins so you hear of hDL and LDL cholesterol these are basically transporter molecules that can transport um, transport cholesterol, which is a fatty substance, in the blood and make it water-soluble. What is most interesting is that in response to sunlight, when sunlight penetrates the skin and you sulfate cholesterol to make cholesterol sulfate, cholesterol sulfate um, goes from from being um, fat-soluble to both water-soluble and fat-soluble. So what that means is that it can get to anywhere it needs to go in your body whenever it whenever it needs to go there, basically. Um, Now, this links in fairly interestingly with LDL, um, and I think, Gabby, um, you will be very interested to hear this, because it's you know, it's your speciality. Um, it's about what happens when there's a sulfate deficiency. Okay, when your body is not not getting enough sunlight um, to produce that sulfate, your body, uh, your your internal organs need sulfate. Okay, so what they do is they need to find another pathway to create this sulfate. Um, the way that they do this is your body essentially takes LDL. Uh, low density lipoproteins or bad cholesterol as you might know it. It takes LDL particles and it turns them into plaque. Now this plaque is then deposited in the cardiovascular system. Um, The plaque that's that's created um it it contains cholesterol it's mainly made up of cholesterol and what its its purpose is is essentially to wait in an area to collect sulfate so that it can produce cholesterol sulfate and then be distributed to the rest of the tissues but unfortunately um you know, the areas where this plaque forms basically lead to cardiovascular disease. Um you, you build up plaques in your heart and your arteries. Um, and the simple reason is is because cholesterol needs to be sulfated to move around the body. And um, and it's really important that you have this cholesterol sulfate. So So the body essentially says, okay, where am I most likely to come across sulfate? Uh, It's most likely going to be in the bloodstream. So I'm going to put something in the cardiovascular system. I'm going to put this plaque in the cardiovascular system so it can pick up the sulfate. And unfortunately for people with heart disease, um, you know, the, the sulfate never comes, often because they're never exposed to the sunlight or they are sulfur deficient. Um, again, uh, the best way to increase sulfate is to um, get adequate sun exposure, eat sulfur-rich foods, eggs, re- red meat, um, dark green leafy vegetables. You know. Um, right. So, so just to recap. Sorry if that was, you know, didn't really make sense. Basically, the process begins in your skin, and it comes from the sunlight. So the sunlight strikes strikes the skin, um, produces vitamin D three. D3 sulfate. Uh, the vitamin D3 sulfate is transported to the liver, where it drops off the sulfate. Uh, then the liver then the liver activates the vitamin D. Um, it's then transported to the kidneys, where it's activated again. And this pathway is entirely dependent on um, adequate amounts of sulfate in the system. Um, so technically, any time that vitamin D will be activated in your body um, is when um, is when there is adequate amounts of cholesterol sulfate to transport or or to convert the vitamin d three sulfate so that it can so that it can be transported away from the skin to the internal organs basically what i 'm trying to say is that whenever there's vitamin d d three in the system that's activated. That means that's basically signifying to the system that your sulfation pathways are working properly. So let's say um, hypothetically you don't go out in the sun. So you do not produce adequate amounts of cholesterol sulfate and therefore you do not produce adequate amounts of vitamin D3 sulfate. Therefore you have an inadequate, um, severely lacking in function sulfation pathway. Okay, and then you take a vitamin D3 supplement. So, what do you think that tells your body? What that tells your body is that (laughs) you've essentially taken activated vitamin D3, you're telling your body that your sulfation pathway is working correctly when it's not. (laughs) Um, And this can be severely problematic. Um, You know, you need that cholesterol sulfate, if anything, it's more important than the vitamin D. Um, so we need to keep that in mind when we think about supplementing. Now, since we're in the winter time um you know the chances of us going outside in the snow and getting adequate amounts of sunlight, especially in the the afternoon when most of us are working, is fairly slim um so we can actually use artificial artificial light to our advantage on this one um we can use special types of light bulbs to mimic the sunlight um first of all, It's important to look at the natural sunlight cycles. So anywhere before ten a.m. is infrared radiation, and then from about ten a.m. to four p.m., you have infrared, UVB, and UVA radiation. After that, it's just it's just infrared radiation again. So what you can actually do is you can buy special types of light bulbs. Um, I I use ones from a company called Exoterra, that's E-X-O space T-E-R-R-A, and um, the the, the brand of the that's the brand of the light bulb the type of light bulb is called solar glow and I use the um, the 160 watt variety now this contains um, UVA UVB visual light and infrared um, and what you can do is you can place this roughly 36 inches away so that's about three 12 inch rulers um, away from your body I usually take my clothes off. Um, and I usually sit sit under that for around an hour, an hour and a half every single day. Um, and this way, you can supplement vitamin D as well. Um, you're not giving your body mixed signals because you are um, getting that UV radiation to be able to produce that cholesterol sulfate. Um, and that way, you can you can um, you know you can still enjoy the potent benefits of the vitamin D. Um, you know hopefully you don't you don't get ill this winter and um, and you know you, you get the amazing effects of the the, the sunlight and the cholesterol sulfate um, now that's that's really all I have to say um, but I hope that helped uh, you know there's there can be more information on this there's there's lots of it online you know there's loads of people who use these artificial lights. I know there's a company called um, spurty. And you can buy spurty vitamin D bulbs. Um, they're worth a try, you know. it's Anything is worth a try. It's just try to, you know, that that natural sunlight is really important. And if, if you're in the northern hemisphere, the chances are in the winter, you're not going to have that opportunity. So you need to try and mit- mitigate those effects. Um, and I can say, in my experience, I've noticed some amazing results. My sleep has been better. Um, and I feel generally more rejuvenated um, after after sitting under the lamp. But um but yeah, there, we can talk about that on future shows. Thanks anyway, guys. I'll see you soon. Bye bye.
3: Thank you, Elliot.
0: Thank you, Elliot. That was
2: it sounded great. like he was right here in the SAT studio. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I just want to say that SAT doesn't endorse any specific brand, but I did ask Elliot specifically. <laughs> <laughs> to give us an idea of the lamps so we know where to get them or how does it look like, or you know so there um after Elliot's suggestion, i did um i i bought a far infrared lamp from from amazon Europe, and I've been doing it exposing like uh, myself on uh, the early hours like at seven eight a m and then like at five six p m again like five minutes, you know, and yes, I've been sleeping better, I've been getting uh, sleepy earlier, uh, I feel better in general, you know, and uh, I read about testimonials in the internet of people who just use far infrared lamps and that's it without UVA, UVB, and they just expose themselves like for 20 minutes, even naked, you know, it's a warm light, it's like being exposed to the sun, literally. And they said that, yes, it have made a difference in their SAD, SAD of this season, you know.
2: How big is that light box?
3: Uh, I don't know, Elliot. the one that I have. I'll put it on the chat. I don't endorse this brand. Again, it was the cheapest Amazon. <laughs> and uh, it is uh, like uh, 12 centimeters. How is that in American measurements? I don't know.
0: Uh, give or take six inches, so it's like a bulb.
3: Yes, it's a bulb, literally. Okay. And it ha- it is used for medical purposes, like for rehabilitation, Tendinitis, you know, uh, muscle aches. It's the same light like about. You know, I figured that if it doesn't work for seasonal affective disorder, it will work when I will have like a aching joint or something. <laughs> <laughs> Well,
6: one thing that I found really interesting about what he was what he was talking about there is that, that how important sunlight is for the sulfation pathway because the sulfation mm-hmm. pathway is really really important for detoxification. So, yeah. if your body's not actually able to make uh, sulfate, if if you aren't exposed to sunlight like that, has a huge implication for like the body's ability to actually detox to get yes. rid of things. But it's not even necessarily really harmful things like like heavy metals and stuff. Although it is really important for that, but just the daily stuff that we happen to build up in our body, like that sulfation pathway, is really important for just like you know side of you know side things that are created during normal um, metabolism. So yeah, yeah it's, it's- that sounds. It's it puts like a new PRS. perspective
3: to cardiovascular disease, you know. it's like I know that people, like in sunny countries, in the tropical countries, they still have a lot of cardiovascular disease. But from the point that Elliot explained, it does, you know, uh, portrays a bigger role for the importance of having healthy detox pathways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: It looks like this is... Uh, Kind of catching on, too, there was a, um, a group of, one of the articles that we were looking at here for the show, a group of uh, high school students uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, mm-hmm. built built a, uh, a light uh, called the Life Light, which is a, a phototherapy light that looks like a normal window covering. Um, so that might yeah. be something interesting. To I don't know if that's commercially available or not, or if they just put it together for them, for a project.
6: No, I think they said they were going to try and do a Kickstarter campaign to actually get it going. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really cool. It's kind of like this this, uh, this blind, like a normal blind that you would like kind of pull over your window, but it's got LED lights built into it. So you just yeah. kind of put it on a window and pull down the blind and put some sheer curtains in. And- oh, yeah. You know, really interesting.
0: Huh. Yeah. Doug, we lost you a little bit there.
6: Oh, head, did you so, Oh. Yeah. Uh, can you hear me now? Yeah. Yes. Yep. Okay.
3: Okay. <clears throat> it's basically yeah, looks- like looking at the window. You
0: know. Yeah, it looks cool. <laughs> if you uh if you Google uh Nuvu Lifelight, N U V U or N U V U. Sorry. Um Lifelight uh Nuvoo is like the, it's called the innovation school. Uh, <clears throat> and it's, it is cool. It, yeah. It just looks like it goes right over your window. Uh, and it looks like there's bright sunlight coming through the window. it's kind of neat. Um, so, yeah, I mean, very interesting. The stuff that Elliot told us and, you know, I've, I've done for many years uh, in the winter, you take vitamin D. That's just what you do, you know, mm-hmm. and if you're starting mm-hmm. to feel down, you just, you try to ramp up your dosage a little more, but, uh, apparently that is not the way to go. And have probably been deceiving my sulfation pathways for many years.
6: <laughs> Maybe and, you know. the thing is though, I'm, I'm, always a little skeptical when, when there's these kinds of dramatic vitamin D, like vitamin D supplementation. So, um, mm. Yeah, I don't know. It, it makes I think more research is probably needed there to really kinda of get to the bottom of it, but it's fascinating nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: From what well, I see from part- vitamin D, it's like what Elliot says is very true. Like it's basically a hormone more than a vitamin, you know. Mm-hmm. And it gives information mm-hmm. from the environment. So we have to um, Keep in mind the whole picture and not just specifically vitamin D deficiency, like blindfolded mm-hmm. from everything else, mm-hmm. just to yeah. have a better perspective. You know? Yeah, and
2: just that's, yeah, that's when awesome. you uh, kind of uh, tinker with hormones or taking hormone supplements. I mean, vitamin D is a hormone. You have to exercise the same amount of caution that you would with uh, supplementing other types mm-hmm. of hormones as well.
6: Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's a good I think point. That's part of the
0: uh, the holistic viewpoint, you know, is taking everything into account. Um, and it may uh, seasonal affective depression specifically um, may not simply result from that uh, lack of sunlight. It's certainly a very large contributing factor, but you also have to mm-hmm. take into account your, uh, your life circumstances, your, uh, your attitude. And, uh, I would say mainly, at least secondly, besides light would be your, uh, your diet during the winter. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked mm-hmm. in the past about how people can generally handle a little bit more, uh, carbs, um, and complex sugars that come from carbs in the summer. Um, but that in the winter you really want to back off of that, uh, almost completely and, and ramp up the, um, you know, the <laughs> high fat yeah, diet during the winter.
4: And also spending time outside, even if it's not sunny, mm-hmm.
1: getting mm-hmm.
2: fresh
4: air. Because
2: and- even on a non-sunny day, the the natural sunlight is like a thousand lux at least. And even that, like mm-hmm. if you look up into the sky during the day, that's enough to activate certain hormonal pathways and, like, increase the amount of retinal melatonin that's produced. So it doesn't have to be <clears> a blindingly <throat> sunny day for you to benefit
3: from daylight. That's a good right. tip. Yeah. Then I was also surprised to read that some people with seasonal affective disorder have 5-HTP problems, like they have more transporters that wipes the 5-HTP off from their bloodstream, So they were thinking about, yeah, supplementing a little bit at least in the in the most difficult months, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's always good to. Well, I was just
0: going to say I think it's always good to maintain a balance uh, of the neurotransmitters and um, to understand how they're uh, produced and not simply take. Like we've talked about, you know, don't just slam supplements because you think that's what you should take. Like, learn what's behind the science of production of these neurotransmitters. The main ones being uh, GABA, serotonin, and dopamine, mm-hmm. and how they how they play together and uh, and how that affects your your mood and your overall sense of uh, of well being.
3: In your carb craving um, in the winter.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm.
2: I think you also have to keep in mind, too, that the winter time has the two, well, for Americans at least, Thanksgiving and then Christmas celebrations. <laughs> and if you come from a dysfunctional family, that can be a time of great stress. <laughs> <laughs>
3: It's the confounded factor.
2: Yeah, so you have to keep that in mind too. It might not just be because the light is the lower. Like if you're an outdoorsy type and you're used to spending a lot of time out in the summertime participating in activities, and all of a sudden it gets cold and dark, and you have to go inside and spending a lot of time with the family members that you don't like.
3: It could be something as simple as having to have a cigarette smo- uh, to sm- smoking cigarettes inside, <laughs> <laughs> probably instead of going outside in the sunshine.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I I think uh one thing I wanted to point out too is um having a pragmatic attitude about this the winter blues because I think it's a fine line between saying like uh you know the the precious snowflake uh <laughs> a thing of like oh I'm sad, you know, like well we'll suck it up, you know, that <laughs> that side of the earth <laughs> versus like something that is actually uh, real that you can uh, treat uh, with certain methods and improve your sense of well-being. It's like, sure, most of us can handle uh, a bit of low-level depression or a bad day or things like that. Um, But, you know, if there's a certain element of your health which is causing that to be worse, why not treat it? Why not fix that aspect of things? Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I can definitely attest to uh, it was like – about two years ago now, when I started really concentrating more on uh, balances of uh, neurotransmitters, uh, that that made a huge difference in my sense of well-being throughout the day, uh, especially throughout the winter. Um, and there's some other interesting as too. I don't have a link right in front of me, but if you look up <laughs> uh, Jim Carrey, the, the comedian actor, and uh, tyrosine, uh, that's T-Y-R-O-S-I-N-E, he yeah. has a he has an interview where he talks about how he got off of Prozac, Prozac by using uh, the amino acid. L-tyrosine? yeah.
3: I didn't yeah. know. That's my favorite supplement for mood enhancement, you know, from the three yeah. of the neurotransmitters. That's good. That's yeah. <laughs> pretty interesting.
0: And in the interview, he talks about how we've been deceived into thinking that we need this chemical cocktail of antidepressants when really all we need is to restore the proper balance of... uh of chemicals within our body. So um, that's worth checking out if you, if you get a chance
3: on a related story, you know, this week I read an article, it was published on Townsend letter. They have um, an online edition, you know, that benzodiazepines like Xanax, they're among the most difficult drugs to stop. You know, it just changes your entire brain and people get, you know, a uh, persistent, chronic-induced anxiety triggered by Xanax, you know. So this week on that magazine, I read a case of somebody who was able to withdraw from Alprazolam or Xanax in less than five weeks by using only vitamin C, niacin, and GABA.
1: Mm-hmm. Huh.
3: Wow, that's pretty. Yeah.
6: Yeah, that's pretty incredible. How long would it usually take to get off those kinds of drugs?
3: Well, just to give you an idea, some people are never able mm-hmm. to get off these drugs. Never, they are mm-hmm. because the anxiety induced it's so debilitating that they just have to increase their benzodiazepines. And actually, they are prescribed antipsychotics, you know, and that doesn't work anymore, and on it, and off it goes, you know.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the withdrawal mm-hmm. symptoms can be pretty severe. Um. And those yeah. drugs are very addicting, so it's pretty good. It only took five weeks.
0: Yeah, I think that's pretty incredible. Yeah. I've I've known I know a couple of people who have gotten off of uh, benzos, and uh, even with the help of uh, you know things like uh, Kava, um or you know other lower level drugs like um, now I can't remember the name of the one. It'll come to me later, but uh, you know, the, uh, tit- titrating the dose and then. Uh, you know, basically weaning off of it and using other things to help. It takes a good six months,
1: mm-hmm. anywhere from six
0: mm-hmm. months to a year. So I think five weeks is pretty incredible.
3: Well, we published also an article on that topic this week, Six Herbs That Promote Mental Well-Being. It was pretty fascinating yeah. to read all these herbs that I never heard before that have uh the same properties of like, you know, some serious stuff, <laughs> but it's all natural. Mm-hmm. I'll put it
2: in the chat here. Yeah, there's is mentioned there. Yeah, there were ginseng and yeah, pepper, mythisticum cava, yeah, passion flower, and some other ones that are difficult to pronounce. Malungo bark, <laughs> macunopurians. A lot of these I'd never heard of, but uh, I mean, yeah. they help with anxiety. And, yeah.
6: Yeah, Makuna yeah. is also known as Kapakachu, uh, so you might you might be able to find it under that name if you can't find it under Makuna. Um, but Mulungu Bark I had never heard of before, so that was an interesting <laughs> one.
1: Yeah.
6: A
0: couple of notes on that. Like if you are interested in pursuing this kind of thing and if you happen to be on benzodiazepines or another form of uh, antidepressant, um, uh, if you're looking into Kava, We've talked about this on the show before, but uh, please take the time to look specifically into noble kava, which is, uh, um, they, there's two types of kava, and the regular one essentially is not as regulated and has more negative side effects. So if you're going to do that, look for the word noble. Um, mm-hmm. And then with, uh, with makuna, uh, <clears throat> as with anything, you want to be very careful with that, but uh, sometimes the extracts of makuna uh, are essentially like 98, 99% L-DOPA. Um, so it'll, it'll be Mukuna, but you're, you're actually taking Levodopa, which is a fine, but not in long doses over or large doses over long periods of time. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. you want to be very careful with anything that you put in your body, but I would say with those two specifically, do your research.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm. You know, another thing that people should check if they have, like, severe depression in wintertime is their vitamin B12 levels. There is a um, holistic psychiatrist that everybody likes a lot, Kelly Brogan, who was sharing her, her experience how... You know, B12 levels Usually when you check on the lab They will give you a range from 150 Or 200 And that will be okay, you're normal, you're fine mm-hmm. But she has found out that Ideally it should be a little bit Above from that Like Ideally above <laughs> 600 <laughs> mm-hmm. So mm. I thought that was very interesting
6: <coughs> Well, what yeah. are It's topics? a B12 Oh, go That's
0: ahead right. please Doug Sorry, go ahead
6: well, I was just going to say that B12 is a pretty, uh, a pretty interesting one. And it's, you know, I, I always kind of hesitate when people are saying that, you know, like we'll take a particular, um, a supplement for a specific condition without actually doing any kind of research first. Because, I mean, B12 isn't going to help with, uh, depression if you aren't um, you know, B12 deficient already. So, you know, I would have people coming into the store I worked at all the time and just taking B12 because they were depressed and that's fine. Um, I actually think in this case, it's actually not a bad thing to try out just because, uh, it is cheap. Um, so you're not really going to, um, do any damage by, by taking B12. Um, so even if you can't afford the blood test, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, and you are suffering from some kind of depression, you might want to try taking, um, a form of B12 just to see if it, if it helps.
3: And ideally, it should be a methylated B12, which is called methylcobalamin, hydroxycobalamin, and adenosylcobalamin.
2: Yeah, a lot of the supplements sell that cyanocobalamin, which deposits tiny amounts of cyanide into your system, which on the short term, (laughs) it might not be that bad, but that's something you want to be careful of doing. Over the long term,
3: because then they then they blame the cigarette smoke. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess overall, uh, just being you know be careful, uh, treat yourself, but but um, don't just run headlong into things. Um, <clears throat> now, granted, most of this stuff is not going to kill you. Uh, you know, but you can you can damage your health in the long term, and you can put yourself through the ringer that you would rather not have gone through. Uh, I can attest mm-hmm. to that personally. I'm I'm being a go bigger, go bigger, go home type of person has has bit me in the ass more than once.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <clears throat> um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the uh the vaccine vaccine season.
1: The coming up. Yeah.
3: Uh, <laughs> They were pushing me uh, the other day. I received an email notification from the chief of the ER that all personnel should ideally be vaccinated. I said, no, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, wow. where to start? I hate, I hate vaccines. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so now the,
2: the health departments around different countries are pushing flu vaccines for people because okay. uh, allegedly they protect. Oh, I have to, uh, yeah. But even if you look at, uh, if, even if you buy into the argument that vaccines are protected for health, like they pick out certain strains that they think are going to be, you know, circulating whichever season and uh-huh. they don't even get that right. <laughs> so yeah, even if you believe the vaccines work, the flu vaccine is only, Effective like Zero to 2% Of the time
3: <laughs> I have this, yeah, A few surprising yeah. Anecdotes From people That I wanted To talk to talk about You know Yeah um, Because it's Full season You know um, Doctors always Recommending it And uh People have uh, told me stories that are very, you know, I was really surprised. One pregnant woman told me that she was not going to get vaccinated because she heard that another pregnant woman had an abortion after her vaccine. And these Mm -hmm. we know from research that we published and sought. Just Mm -hmm. it was a little bit more shocking to hear from somebody that I know. And then all the elderly people or Several people have come to the um, to consult because after getting the the vaccine shot, they got sick and they were like, oh my God, I never get sick and I got mm-hmm. this vaccine and I got sick. You know? mm-hmm. And the other yeah. story that I heard from somebody said that I'm not going to get vaccinated because I heard from a young man who got his vaccine and he ended up a few days later in the intensive care unit and he died afterwards.
6: Well, jeez.
2: Well, all the yeah. vaccine proponents will chalk all that up to just mere coincidence like uh, a lot no, of people no, no. If you suggest a, va- a flu vaccine for them as patients I'll say no I'm not getting the flu vaccine because every time I got one I got sick and I got the flu and then the nurse will say oh that that probably would have happened anyway i mean the flu vaccine is not 100% <laughs> effective
3: <laughs> like why are flu, you no, pushing it you know? yeah 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 it is estimated that only like 2% of the severe adverse effects are actually reported. Mm-hmm. So people yeah. be careful. This is serious stuff. This stuff, it's not good at all.
4: Well, and one of the side effects yeah. is narcolepsy. <laughs> so there's mm-hmm. an article on SOD about the yeah. and flawed science behind flu vaccines, and they were saying that the pander, pandemrix, pandemrix. Flu, pandemrix vaccine was associated with a 1,400% increase of narcolepsy. Mm. Yeah. That's
6: crazy. That's crazy. Wow.
2: Well, they, they try to scare people into getting these vaccines by over-inflating the amount of flu deaths. Like, they'll combine, the CDC will combine the number of deaths from the flu with pneumonia. So there's really no telling, like, how many people really die of the flu or how many people die of respiratory complications uh, due to pneumonia or some other ailment that they got after having the flu so it's hard to tell really how you know how dangerous the flu can be you know i've had the flu and it didn't seem that bad to me <laughs> yeah
0: to it. i know we've talked about this before and from what i've under- from what i understand the the best way to actually build up your immune system is to get the illness. Correct. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the idea of a vaccine is mm-hmm. that it triggers your immune system so it becomes stronger. But the best way is to actually encounter the the live virus uh, or whatever it might be. Now, I, mm-hmm. I I do understand from a point of view of people who have not studied the subject and just think off the top of their heads that well, you just you're you're a tinfoil hatter and you just don't care if people get sick and that 's not true mm-hmm. uh, there's you know there 's science around this, but it 's extremely hard to talk about um, <laughs> you actually wouldn 't be surprised if uh this this fall season uh, if you 're anti vaccine you 're going to be called a, a trump supporter they 're going to link those two
1: <laughs> well another thing okay. is
2: is that the flu is just the general term for you know your body 's way of dealing with a detox or, or toxifying substance. And the means that it goes through to get rid of that, like the fever, the chills, you know, the lack of mm-hmm. appetite. Um, I mean, a lot of ailments have flu-like symptoms. Like AIDS is classified as something that has a flu-like symptom. A lot of you know illnesses have those symptoms, the same symptoms. And you say, Seca. you know, yeah, like uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's flu season. But how many people are actually you know have a blood sample taken? And they have it tested in the lab, and they identify a particular flu virus in association to whatever illness that they have. I mean, flu for me is just the general term of a set of symptoms.
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's uh, in that same article that uh, Erica was talking about. She said it says that uh, in any given year, only three to eighteen percent of suspected influenza infections actually test positive mm-hmm. for influenza, type A or type B. So. There you go.
0: <laughs> I think it's a better uh, from my personal <clears throat> sort of layperson's viewpoint it's better to err on the side of caution uh up your your diet uh and your daily practices to strengthen your immune system as opposed to taking the shotgun blast of whatever happens to be in the vaccine. Mm-hmm. You know, when it's up against mm-hmm. those two choices it's like take a natural approach and make yourself more healthier in a holistic way. Um you know and that's then you actually end up being stronger in the long run.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Mhm. Um
0: I wonder too if we could touch back on the, which is something we've talked about before since we are talking about vaccines the idea of uh, herd immunity being a fallacy and I know Doug you've you've mentioned that in the past do you do you mind vamping on that for a minute? Yeah. I, I'm not I'm not 100% aware of the uh, the details on that.
6: Uh Searching my memory banks here. Well, let's see. I guess um, you know the the idea that um, those who have had uh, the vaccine will be protected themselves from getting um, getting the flu, and therefore, if a, a certain uh, percentage of the population gets the vaccine, then there is kind of this this umbrella of immunity that will kind of cover everyone because, you know, so many people are have had the vaccine that um, it provides protection for even those who, who, who don't, who haven't had it. Um, of course, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a flawed idea and I'm kind of blanking on the specifics of it now. Um, well, well, it's
3: just this example. For example, in, the, in this article that I read, you know, it seems to me that my exposure to get a uh, flu um the flu disease it will be from vaccinated people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so <laughs> actually mm-hmm. i will get sick if i get exposed to vaccinated people that's absurd you know
2: well that's been shown oh, with the what? measles vaccine yeah. and also particularly with uh, non-injected forms of vaccines like with the oral polio and the flu mist which is a nasal spray like the oral polio and the flu mist, you know, you shed that out through your your stool and your breath, and so you're actually spreading polio and the flu mm-hmm. just by getting vaccinated. Yes. So there goes your herd yeah. immunity theory, right there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, here I found some of the information about measles specifically that it's. Uh, well-documented that prior to vaccination cycles of natural infection added to the herd's immunity. So that mm-hmm. was more effective in terms of herd immunity and that vaccination creates a quote unquote quasi sterile environment, which opens up the possibility of uh, disease outbreaks.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Yes.
0: So, and also the, uh, the data around there being eruptions of, uh, of, uh, outbreaks, um, such as measles, in populations that were 100% vaccinated
3: mm-hmm. in
0: small case studies that they did in different towns.
3: And even, yeah. you know, with a SOSTER, you know, problem that we had in the recent years after the vaccination for varicella was introduced, uh, SOSTER used to be seen only in the elderly or immunocompromised. Now we see it on young people, teenagers, 20 years old, 30 years old,
2: Yeah, so not only does vaccination not help you not get the ailment that you got vaccinated against, it can also cause a worse form of it. So if you get a flu vaccine, you might have a flu that puts you down for like a month versus one that lasts like a week or a few days. Or the same with um, the measles. You get a more severe form of measles or mumps or whatever else you might be vaccinated against.
4: It's almost like the show we have.
2: And it's not even necessarily
1: yeah
6: it's not even necessarily a a more severe form of that um disease that you uh were vaccinated against um there was a study it's actually one of the only i think is the only study you'll ever see where a vaccinated uh population was compared to an unvaccinated population it was out of hong kong and it was a placebo controlled all that good stuff um And they followed uh, children between the ages of 6 and 15 years uh, old for 272 days. And the trial concluded that, first of all, the flu vaccine holds no health benefit. Uh, And secondly, those vaccinated with the flu virus were observed to have a 550% higher risk of contracting a non-flu virus. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah, it's not only like a more severe form of the flu, it's something completely unrelated to the flu. It just made them more susceptible to it, um, to to almost any disease, it seemed like.
2: It's like a a blanket destruction of your immune system.
6: Yeah, breaking down. Basically, yeah.
0: Well, now on the uh, sort of PR side of things, too, uh, one of the articles we were looking at for this was uh, that the CDC won't allow its own whistleblower to testify in a mm-hmm. vaccine damage case. Um, and this is a pretty fascinating story, uh, and I think speaks to the uh, uh, the weakness of uh, the whistleblower laws that are in the United States. They're pretty much just like smoke and mirrors. But um, So uh, just to overview, for the first time in 30 years, a vaccine damage case has gone before a court judge. Uh, lawyers for a 16-year-old autistic boy are suing a medical clinic for administering vaccines that brought about the autism. The CDC, of course, denies any connection between vaccines and autism. But William Thompson, who is a longtime CDC researcher, uh, states uh, publicly and uh, uh, without equivocation that he and his colleagues concealed research data that would have shown the MMR vaccine uh, was linked uh, to the creation of autism in young people. Um, So the lawyers for the boy in this case, wanted to bring Thompson in to testify, but the CDC uh, said no. Uh, the head of the CDC, Thomas Frieden, states, Dr. Thompson's deposition testimony would not substantially promote the objectives of the CDC or the HHS. Uh, which is not. You know, yeah, so they just Of course it wouldn't yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Exactly.
0: What I think is really interesting is that in accordance with the Whistleblower Protection Act, uh, Dr. Thompson cannot testify under oath without permission of the director of the CDC. So <clears throat> yeah. what kind of sense th- what kind of sense does that make, you know, if you're a whistleblower, you have mm-hmm. to get permission of the people you're blowing the whistle on to talk <laughs> about it? Yeah, yeah and who gives Dr.
2: Frieden yeah. legal authority to say who can and cannot testify in, in a court in the United States?
0: Right, that is just I just mind blowing. What, what the, you know, what are the, what would be the penalties then if he were to testify? Would he lose his job, or would he be, you know, fined and uh, imprisoned? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm not sure what the, what the threat is. There's obviously some kind of threat in play.
3: Well, I think he's still working. Well, I that. think
0: the judge
6: probably wouldn't let him.
2: Yeah, I'm surprised he actually still has his job at this point. Yeah,
6: I'm surprised he's still alive. Well, that's how they can control him. That's how they can keep him silent. They keep him on the payroll, then technically he still works for them, so they can control whether or not he's allowed to, to testify or not.
5: Yeah, it's basically
6: like, you know, I, I, I doubt he goes into the office and actually, like, does stuff. I mean, maybe he does, but I would be very surprised. They probably just keep but him on the he, payroll, so technically he still works for the CDC. He,
0: he does. He's still employed by the CDC, and I think that's part of the, the point of the whistleblower, protection act is that uh you it basically gives you a legal loophole to your non-disclosure agreement so that Mm -hmm. if you see morally or ethically wrong things that are happening you're allowed to testify about that or allowed to blow the whistle without being terminated because there's an ethical dilemma there
2: and Um, then a lot of those uh, whistleblowing cases they are financially compensated to help take away some of that you know uh their reluctance to testify
3: yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. please, somebody help this guy, please. <laughs> Got yeah. very important information. Yeah.
6: Maybe Donald so. Trump will help him.
2: He can start a <laughs> Kickstarter campaign to, you know, help him pay his mortgage every month in exchange for testify.
3: <laughs> yeah, people need to be aware that he has in possession documents that were destroyed already by the CDC, you know, with a link between autism and the MMR vaccine, you know. CDC pretty much destroyed all the information. And he's just the one that has it, you know, by testimony and by also personal documents.
0: Yeah, I would say, like, just leave leave the CDC and then testify. <laughs> but, you know, of course, it's easier said than done to leave your, your livelihood. Um, I don't know what's going on in his life. And uh, uh, I'm sure it's not that simple, that black and white.
6: Yeah, it's kind of a weird case. Like, I, I wonder if there's something preventing him from quitting in some way, like blackmail or something. I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm just completely sure. speculating here, but it just seems so weird that he would come out with this damning evidence and then just kind of keep staying at the CDC and hanging out. It, it just seems like kind of a weird thing.
1: Yeah.
4: Well, especially after the release of Vaxed, which, you know, nobody knew who well, yeah. William Thompson was before the yeah. release of that movie.
3: Yeah, and after watching Vaxxed, you can get an idea that the guy got really worried when he just saw blatant corruption. He thought, okay, I better, you know, do <laughs> the whistleblower because we're, we are all going down here. That's basically the impression that I had. Yeah. Yeah.
2: But in a way, isn't the whistle already blown? <laughs> I mean, I mean, this isn't a secret anymore. the The movie's out. There's lots of documentation. But I guess until the courts start accepting the actual link, it really doesn't do much good to have this information if people aren't being compensated or if it doesn't lead to any change in, like, the vaccine schedule.
4: Well, that was what was interesting about this article was it's the first time in 30 years that a vaccine damage case has gone before a court judge. Mm -hmm. And not just gone
2: to that, um, the vaccine compensation.
6: Vaccine court. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I think something that, you know, it's an unfortunate, uh, <clears throat> side effect of our, our current, uh, political system that something that retains a, uh, a legal judgment in the court has more teeth to it than mm-hmm. simply releasing documentation. Yeah. Um, and mm. I, I think that's really unfortunate. I think it's a total fallacy, you know, that, that it's, it's an appeal to authority, um, that are not authorities on this matter, um. Just saying, if a judge says that it's okay, then it you know then it's true. Uh,
4: well, that can be used later yeah. on for exemptions, you mm-hmm. know, court case rulings,
1: right? Especially
4: mm-hmm. when they're doing yeah. away with the philosophical and religious exemption.
0: Yeah. Well, another topic that we wanted to talk about today, um, which you know we don't have to rant about for a long time, but is just that this connection of big pharma. <laughs>
1: to um
0: to the government and uh one of the articles that we were looking at here was uh this has actually come out from a former chief of the dea <coughs> excuse me uh jo- joseph rana rana yeah. i guess is how you pronounce it form former deputy yeah. assistant administrator at the dea uh asserts that big pharma has a stranglehold on legislators in congress I have, and have engineered the protection of a nine billion dollar industry over the health of American citizens. Um, <clears throat> he explains that lobbyists have spent millions of dollars thwarting legislative and policy efforts to provide guidelines for reducing the prescribing of opioid medications closely related to heroin. Um, which I think, you know, you don't have to stretch very far to link that to the uh, the opioid uh, epidemic that's happening in the in the country right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it really yeah. is all over the place. uh And not just in metro areas, but, you know, out in in the country as well. It's spreading across the the whole country like wildfire. And people don't make these opioids in their basement. You know, they come from pharmacies. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're very easily prescribed. And that's exactly how they get seeded into the black market is uh, people get prescriptions uh, very easily and then they sell the pills. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a connection all the way up to the top here because, of course, uh, no matter what, m- that money ends up in the bank account of the pharmaceutical companies.
3: Mm. Yeah, I've mm. noticed a relaxation of the rules, like, whereas like 10 years before ago, um, you could only prescribe opioids on a special uh, prescription paper that you have to get the, mm. from the official medical college or whatever. And you have to put the name of the person, and it was all very tightly controlled. And now that's completely gone, you know, you can prescribe it so easily with no indication if you want. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah.
2: And it's really so hard to fight tough. against. I mean, for one, it's big pharma and they have, you know, million-dollar lawyers on their side, but they also have all these lobbyists that, you know, are lobbying Congress to pass laws in their favor. So it's kind of like you're up against a behemoth and like the only real way to protect yourself is to not use opioids and don't worry about what the laws do or not do.
0: Yeah. Mm
6: -hmm. Yeah.
0: I think unfortunately a lot of people are in a cycle of addiction, you know, which perpetuates itself, but, uh, but also are, um, you know, given the advice of authority figures whom they trust, IE doctors, uh, Take these medications, which then causes dependencies. Um, and you know, you don't have to be like a, a junkie sleeping in the gutter, you know, to be addicted to to opiates. There are many, many functional uh, opiate addicts who are in society who are not, um, you know. A, a, I'm trying to distinguish between labeling them as as criminals. They're not, you know, and even even the guy in the gutter is not a criminal. People who are sucked into this cycle of addiction uh is uh, certainly maybe their fault at a certain point, you know, a lack of willpower or something along those lines. So you can make that argument. But I tend to lean towards the size of, like, this is a health issue. It's a problem that people
3: have. It's yeah, I mean, many factors. it is. It is a iatrogenic disease, basically you know that are children ages one to nineteen their opioid poisoning hospitalizations went up by one hundred sixty five percent what business is a one year old ch- child has taken opioids that's crazy yeah
1: yeah, yeah that
0: is crazy. <clears throat> I feel like this situation might be helped, uh, if you look at it from a political angle, by following the example of the uh, the Netherlands in uh, decriminalizing a lot of these drugs so that treatment can actually be sought by people. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. the uh, laws are so it, – it's such a hypocrisy here that the the laws are strict among people who possess and use opioids, but they're very lax on manufacturers and distributors of those drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> You know, and so people then are criminalized uh, for being sucked into a cycle of addiction and there's no treatment options available for them <clears throat> there only, are if they want to spend a bunch of money, you know.
3: But. No, no, and the options include another drug. For example, poisonings from heroin for teens ages 15 to 19 went up by 161%. While poisoning from methadone, which is the antidote, supposedly, you know, for, to withdraw from heroin, is, was increased by 950% hmm. in teens. Methadone is just another hmm. drug. It's just a legal one, so people can stop using heroin, you know, which is illegal. Yeah. <sighs>
6: Well, one of the crazy things I saw when I was watching a video at one point where they were talking to, uh, people who are addicted to like pharmaceutical opioids and the number of them who had actually graduated to heroin from that because they could no longer get, for whatever reason, their opioids, like, you know, they couldn't get another prescription or, you know, they, they had their addiction had increased so that they needed more than their, um, prescription would allow for, or there was none available on the street for whatever reason, they actually found it was easier or cheaper to get heroin. So actually graduated, you know, getting getting a prescription from your doctor Mm -hmm. that then progresses to the point of getting heroin on the street. It's just insane. Yeah,
0: totally. Well, and you know, I don't know if any of our listeners have ever struggled with, uh, opioid addiction. I haven't personally, but I have with other types of addiction. And, uh, when you're in that cycle, Um, you know, your first thought is not treatment. Your first thought is to alleviate the pain of the Mm -hmm. withdrawal. And so it makes sense that people who may not be able to get the prescription pills that they were, uh, that have created a dependency on that. They're going to look for other means and heroin is so much more widely available in the United States now than it used to be. I mean, it's crazy Mm -hmm. even like where I live in a rural area, it's, it's, it's starting to be a problem here. Um,
3: I was, (sighs) yeah, yeah. Will, oh, sorry, Jonathan. I interrupted you.
0: No, no, no. That's I'm done. Sorry.
3: <laughs> I was I was gonna say that uh, I was talking to a palliative a doctor who works in palliative care. You know, and she was yeah very worried about all these opioid crisis because um, she says that she never had this problem before with morphine. Mm. Like people never got addicted, and and they have cases now people recovering from cancer that don't require the opioids anymore. They cannot, you know, stop it. You know, they're totally hooked on them. And they never had this problem with morphine. <laughs> and the Morphine works much better. They're seeing also that the the patches, the opioid patches, sublingual uh, drops of opioids, it all works very chaotically and doesn't manage pain that well. After all, it actually increases it sometimes. While well, no. morphine worked pretty fine, you know, I think Big Pharma... But uh, this product, you know, there was no need. They created one, and then now we have a complete mess, you know.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, they, you know, in this connection, just to draw back to what we were talking about, the connection between the lawmakers, uh, the legislators, and the uh, the producers uh, of these substances, the same connection with the vaccine industry, um, as we see with the, the case about Dr. Thompson being hamstrung um and the you know <clears throat> just the way that the uh, the distribution of vaccines is uh, is approved and, and promoted by the government um what I see this as looking at trying to look at it from a larger kind of perspective is that uh, this is a symptom and an a symptom and a, a result of our uh, authoritarian uh following mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The idea that uh, that people, uh, by and large, uh, have have given up their their will uh, and their ability to think critically to someone who they want to tell them what to do. You know, master, please tell mm-hmm. me what the right choice. Um, yeah,
2: I think a lot of you know, it stems from like these people don't set out to develop chronic conditions or develop these debilitating addictions to these drugs. But I think a lot of it stems from people just seeking that magic bullet. And like yeah. you said, Jonathan, they yeah. don't take responsibility for their own health. They give up their will to someone
0: else.
3: Never do that. It's yeah. Dangerous.
0: Yeah, and once you get, in, once you get into that cycle, um, you know, it's, it's very easy to do because, of course, the authorities know what they're talking mm-hmm. about. They're the authorities. That's how they got there, you know. So, of mm-hmm. course, they know. Of course, the doctors know what's best, or the government knows what should be right and wrong, and and, and legal or not. Um, so I just won't think about it. I'll just take their word on it, mm. you know. So of of course I should be taking Oxy for for back pain, you know, or <laughs> or uh, or Xanax for anxiety, uh, because that's what works. Mm-hmm. And that once that cycle continues and, and people get into it, um, I think it's very hard to break out of because, as we know, you know, destroying a sacred cow in your own mind, is a very long, drawn-out, difficult process. You can't just tell somebody that, uh, that your, your leaders don't have your best interests in mind. Um, it's a very hard uh, transition to make mentally, psychologically.
2: Yeah, and then the, the seeking out of the magic bullets just come, comes back to bite you in the ass. Uh, there's an article on SAD uh, about miracle drugs that Big Pharma now regrets. So there's yeah, yeah, yeah. all these medications, like when they first came out, they were just boons to the industry. And, you know, everybody thought that they held such promise. And then, you know, people start taking them for a couple of years. You know, they do the little guinea pig phase because the testing before the drugs aren't re- are released aren't really adequate and they're funded by the drug company. So, of course, they're going to find whatever result they want. But then you got like the uh, proton pump inhibitors, the antibiotics, birth control pills, I mean, there's a really long list of drugs that were thought to be so great, but then after a while, you know, they're kind of nightmares. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Like the one for hair loss. Um, Propecia.
2: Because <laughs> of sexual yeah.
3: dysfunction and erectile dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't even, it's not even reported. All they say is that you're going to grow some hair. <laughs> God. Yeah. Yeah. So you have
2: a nice full head of hair, yeah. but you won't be able to perform sexually.
6: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wonder if it was that they were actually upfront about it. How many guys would actually be taking that uh, that medication?
1: Hmm.
6: Probably not many. No. And and then be
1: <laughs>
6: Yeah, it's
1: yeah,
2: still a yeah, bit think of the Who take steroids, and they know that it shrinks their testicles, but, you know, they got to
3: bulk up. (laughs) They don't care. That's a
6: good point, actually. Yeah, (laughs) Weird.
3: I think I was most surprised with Tylenol paracetamol because it's like, you know, the drug that is considered the safest to take for pregnant women. Mm-hmm. And then you have all these studies showing that their babies actually have more ADHD, developmental problems, delays, language delays, and there you go. Mm-hmm.
4: And that of, well, that of individual stimuli, negative stimuli, mm-hmm. so basically just Again, a numbing, an emotional. Numbing. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah,
2: yeah. There were I a couple Gabby of articles right out now. about Tylenol decreasing your ability to feel empathy mm-hmm. for other people. Yeah,
6: yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. I remember that.
3: That explains. <laughs> Everybody takes
6: it yeah. Well,
0: that Gabby, what you well, said. There about was also the,
3: the talk of the. Oh, S- sorry, Go Jonathan, ahead, Doug.
0: Well, I was just going well, to. I was just going to say in. that
6: the... <laughs>
0: we have a delay. I think I delay here.
6: Oh, so sorry about that. You yeah. go ahead, Jonathan. No. All
0: right. so I was just going to transition us into talking about uh, uh, anxiety and mental health in children. It was one of our last topics that we wanted to connect the dots between, mm-hmm. you know, the coming winter blues, the the vaccine season, how that affects your your mental and hormonal imbalances. Um, and some stories that have been coming out about, uh, you know, mental health specifically as it's related to children. And so I thought what Gabby said about ADHD being very prominent kind of was a good transition into that. Um, but I, I don't want to negate what you were going to say. Please uh,
6: please go ahead. No. <laughs> no, go, go ahead, Jonathan. That's fine.
0: Okay.
3: <laughs> I was going to so, uh, say uh, yeah. on that topic, Jonathan, of ADHD – we published an article this week on thought. It's called ADHD, A Destructive Psychiatric Hoax. It's written by a psychologist, Philip Hickey, and uh, from, for the blog Mad in America. And uh, it's very good because there's a bestseller right now called The ADHD Nation. He deconstructs that book point by point, saying basically how it's all like a manufacturer thing just, you know, to increase the market for for these drugs and target children and how psychiatry has lost its north big time, you know. Mm-hmm. The new book, the DSM-5, which is the psychiatrist's Bible, it has basically relaxed the um, the criteria for so many mental illnesses that basically the entire population is candidate for medication. Yeah. It's absurd. It's absurd, really. Uh, I do encourage you I mean, to men- read it.
0: Mental <laughs> illness is a very real thing that a lot of people struggle with. I don't want to say illness, but mental instability, you know, different issues around the functioning of the mind and how it affects your well being is a very real thing. And I think that there's definitely a place for a study of that. And I can see why they came up with the DSM. They're like, okay, so we need to figure out a way to perhaps target um, different, you know, groups or ranges of conditions and help people recover from that. But now the DSM in this entire industry has become this beast that has mutated beyond all recognition to where, like you said, everybody's got something, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um I think literally everybody. I don't think if you walked around with the DSM, you could find one person who didn't fit the criteria for a condition <laughs> in that book.
3: All yes. these labels, they create diseases that discourage proper medicine. For example, as as Philip says, you know, in case of ADHD, well, right, a child is inattentive, he's distracted, you know. But that doesn't say, you know, where? Why is he distracted? Is it lax parenting inconsistent parenting, indulgent parenting, mm-hmm. emotional abuse? Uh, sorry, like, can we find out? Actually, no. These criteria is just basically medication. That's it. Next, you know.
2: Well, at the same time, though, there is an increase in anxiety and suicides in children. I mean, that is a real thing. Um. Again, though, I think it's societal or familial causes and not anything that needs to be medicated. But there was an article up about the number of children in the UK that are calling a helpline, which is really sad. Like, can you imagine, like, when some of us are younger that there was a helpline that young kids would call? Like, there's no one that they can talk to about their anxieties. They have to pick up a phone and talk to some government-sponsored stranger.
4: And the children are as young as eight years old? Yeah, And where are they getting the information to call this helpline?
2: Probably from school, which is another reason for their stress.
1: Yeah, no doubt.
4: Yeah, and they said that girls were seven times more likely to seek the help than boys.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. But yeah, it's a huge symptom of where our culture has gone. I mean, like you said, school is one one of the causes of this... uh, Dysfunction. So you have that. You have just all the craziness in the media, which trickles down to the children. Of course, they're around while the TV is on. They hear their parents talking about all the things that are happening in the world, and it's scary, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then you have, uh, like, we're talking about the the field of psychology and the or psychiatry and the, the conditions in the DSM, which have now hurt. Their, what I believe was their original intention, which was to actually help people and help to give them avenues where they could seek treatment, now that it has become um, debased, uh, it's become diluted by, by all of these uh, conditions that are coming up. And so people who have issues, let's say like a child is traumatized by school, they're separated from their family, they're traumatized by their diet and their environment, and they're traumatized by everything that they hear, they're looking for help. Um, and nobody's there to help them. In fact, they tell them that they have five conditions that need five different medications. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I get why, why kids would start to think like, what's the point of growing up? You know?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
4: yeah. Well, a lot of they don't the want us to grow up too seem to be, you know, what we've discussed before mm-hmm. on the show about, you know, this declining in childhood play, just being children.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: There was a good article on SAD about rising anxiety and depression in children and adolescents related to declining in childhood play. And they talked about how for most of human evolution, children learn through autonomous self-directed play and parents weren't involved. So the uh-huh. helicopter parenting and uh, the kids played in groups, they invented games, they made up rules, negotiated, experimented and explored their world with the minimal parental influence and uh, an author even wrote a book about it. Peter Gray called the decline of play and the rise of psychopathology in children and adolescents, you know, when somebody writes a book, (laughs) you know, and they, um, (laughs) he basically said that through all, you know, these effects of, you know, that, that unmonitored play that children get better mental health. So we see, this happening, you know, you can't go outside, you can't do this, you can't do that, you're inside. I mean, and then the whole seasonal affective disorder. so now they're inside all winter and yeah, then and their you, mental and health And you can't numbers.
2: work out, you know, small issues amongst your peers without an adult stepping in to solve yeah. everything for you. So you never develop any kind of skills and negotiation or coping skills or anything like that to help you in life. I mean, you're just pretty much at the mercy of adults and... Ah! Well, we see where that leads us.
3: <laughs> yeah. People don't grow up mm-hmm. as a result.
0: Right. It's just like we were mm-hmm. talking about Gatto's point last week about artificially extended childhood. We have children raising children, um, you know, not just, uh, by, not just by the metric of age, but by the metric of uh, maturity and ability to deal with the world. Now, you may be able to uh, hold a job and pay your bills. That doesn't mean that you're developed as an adult. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, a lot of people are functional members of society and still um, mentally, uh, psychologically stunted. And I'm, trust me, I am not holding myself up as any kind of example. (laughs) I'm screwed. No,
3: me neither, but (laughs) as it is. I want to read a small quote from Philip uh, Hickey from the ADHD article. He says, under the guise of medical care, they routinely rob people of their sense of competence, their dignity, and in many cases, their lives. They have radically undermined the concept of success through disciplined effort and have ensnared millions of people worldwide in their ever-expanding web of drug-induced dependency and self-doubt. That pretty much summarizes it. That that pretty Mm -hmm. much
0: sums it up, yeah.
3: So depressing. (laughs)
0: Yep. That's every time we talk about mental health, it gets really depressing.
6: That's the thing. Yeah.
3: <laughs> and it's a, it's a, an objective view. It's depressing. Yeah, it's true.
2: And the reason it's, it's depressing is that there are no simple solutions. It requires a lot of work on an individual basis, but we know enough about human nature to know that most people aren't willing to put that work in. And then on the other hand, everything is so in- linked together, like education, medicine, food, diet, government, big pharma. Like the whole system just needs to be reset and everybody start from zero. And maybe you can try and get it right yeah. from the starting point. But having to work backwards, it just seems really overwhelming. And that's the depressing part.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it is overwhelming. Yeah. I mean- the system has created people who need the system. so when, when people argue, like uh, quick aside this whole election business, I've gotten into discussions with a few of my friends about the idea of anarchy, not, not, not chaos, not chaos, but the idea of self-rule, you know, um, voluntary interaction with other members of your group, whatever it might be. So the, the overwhelming outcome of that discussion is it's not possible. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a similar uh, viewpoint that could be taken with what we're talking about here, which is the system has created people who need the system, um, and it's so firmly entrenched now that the idea of resetting it or getting out of that um, <clears throat> seems so far fetched and impossible. Because what uh, what foundation is there for that effort? Mm-hmm. How, how, you know, mm-hmm. we need we need people to do it, and the people are are not capable.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think that um, there may always need to be a system in quotes because there's a sizable portion of the population who really do need somebody to tell them what to do. But the problem is they have the wrong people telling them what to do. (laughs) But then it becomes a slippery slope. Like who says who the right person is? And you have the same (laughs) thing all over again.
6: (laughs) We can
3: vote for them.
1: Yeah,
6: yeah.
3: (laughs) Let higher consciousness guide the process. <laughs> uh-huh.
2: Well, what if well, you don't just... have access to your higher consciousness? What if there's nothing <laughs> you know? other, and you are just the person so... that goes about their day and you'd be fine if, you know, there weren't evil influences on you?
3: So maybe the people with high consciousness could provide the example and then that yeah. portion of the population who needs authority will just follow, you know. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, I think there's a difference between you know a legitimate authority and uh, the and, and threat of, of violent force, which is mm-hmm. what we have right now. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm not getting into the whole political aspect of things, but just look at what we've been talking about with um, mental health, uh, big pharma, vaccines, drugs, um, all of these uh, these uh, ways. You know that uh, that our culture is is being uh, debilitated. The consequence for not doing that is a threat of violent force
1: Um,
0: because, you know, especially now that they're beginning to pass more laws in relation to um, say vaccines specifically, if you, you know, it's very possible that, and it's happened in a few cases now that if you don't vaccinate your child, the police will come and take them away. That is a threat of violent Mm -hmm. force, you Mm -hmm. know, for, to, to obey the directive of the, of the leaders. Now, if the leaders actually had any sort of legitimate uh, authority, their advice, not directives, but their advice would make sense. And we would go, Oh yeah, that makes sense. Let's do that. You know? Um, but because it's, uh, because it's backed by, uh, by, by threat, um, it's, uh, in my mind that makes it illegitimate. Um, of course that's, you know, what are you going to do? Like, you're not going to get into a shootout with the cops when they come to take your kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if you do, you'll get killed, you know, and they'll get killed. Um, there, it's a very real, uh, consequence to, to standing up against, um, federal agencies in this regard. Uh, so let me be very clear about that. I'm not advocating anything of the sort. I'm saying the, uh, the obvious consequence of, of, uh, of making any kind of a a stand when it comes down to the wire is, uh, uh, you're done. And Mm -hmm. so that, that the point I am trying to make is that that it makes sense to me why people, have been roped into this system and into believing um, what they're told because subconsciously they're very scared and they, I believe, should be scared of the outcome.
4: Well, and I think that's why we see such a rise in anxiety, not just in children, but in adults as well. Mm-hmm. It's that basically your loss of your free will. And maybe they're not intellectually aware of that, but it's almost like that feeling that you know there's nothing mm-hmm. you can do. And-
1: mm-hmm.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Hmm.
0: So, I mean, if we talk about what we can do, I think Tiffany made a really good point that uh, it's a very long, slow, drawn out, difficult process to extract yourself from uh, the the belief in uh, the legitimacy of this authority from the idea that, you know, these... These methods of treatment of the problems that we have are, are right and good and functional. Uh, when they're not that cognitive dissonance, weeding your way through that <clears throat> and finding a clear viewpoint on it and, uh, and working your way back towards some sort of semblance of, of mental health and functioning, uh, is very, very difficult and very long process. So, uh, you know, what can we do in the meantime? Um, the small steps we can make. I think one of the main ones. It's it's not the end-all be-all, but one of the main ones is diet that we've talked about. And I think that's why it's so important. And it should not be trivialized as like, oh, it's just Atkins or, oh, I'm just going on a diet this week. Uh, it's like when you change what you put into your body, you allow your body to function uh, more effectively, more efficiently. You allow your mind uh, to become clearer. And then everything else uh, in the way that you approach life and the circumstances around you uh, becomes much more manageable. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a chain reaction that goes up to the way that you actually live. Um, I think that's one of the main things, you know, and so, uh, just encouraging people on a very, very basic level to try to get off of processed foods, reduce their intake of sugar and go from there. Like Mm -hmm. that's kind of like the first step, I think, you know, there's a bunch of details after that, Mm -hmm. but
4: not to fall for the big pharma trap.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Please.
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: And not to have to move to Italy's first vegetarian city.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: I uh, don't worry. That that will never succeed in Italy. It's just meat. It's a staple food there. You know, <laughs> the mayor is yeah. crazy.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I was really surprised when I saw that.
2: <laughs> yeah, that'll so probably not, just be a good. fad. Like most people can't change their diets over the long term, anyway. <laughs> So I'm sure, like <laughs> after a while, everything will calm down and people will go back to you know eating their sausages in public <laughs> without fear, of, <laughs> fear of persecution.
0: Yeah, it's uh it's Turin, right? Uh, yeah. It says, Turin's new mayor has announced plans to make it a vegetarian city, even introducing a weekly meat-free day. <laughs> <laughs> so he's going oh, Lock their doors and <laughs> shut the blinds while they're eating meat on the meat-free day.
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure the guys yeah, selling the- ham are not worried at the you know at all <laughs> about that.
4: For a region that's yeah. famous for its cured meats,
1: <laughs> yes,
0: <clears throat> the it ha- it just the hard seems like. It. A- Oh, doug please go ahead it
6: seems a really bizarre a bizarre thing for them to do like in Italy nonetheless it just seems so so strange. Like for a city to decide that it's gonna be a vegetarian city and then when you kind of read under the de- into the details of that it's like it's not even that it's it's not like they're banning meat or anything like that they just want to kind of promote vegetarianism and veganism as an alternative mm-hmm. well like why is that the mandate of a city that mm-hmm. just seems very strange like it seems like uh maybe just a way to kind of put them on the map in some way, hoping to increase tourism or something, get a lot of vegan tourists coming along or something. I don't know. Sure. It just seems like a strange thing for us, for a city like a, a mayor to decide.
0: Yeah. It's because well, the she's mayor. A, a vegetarian. Uh,
6: yeah.
2: <laughs> and that's just the what
0: chief. they do. <laughs> <laughs> I like the, the last. Uh... True.
4: The last sentence of the, the article talks about how we don't like being told what to do in terms of our diet. This is part of our anti-authoritarian genetics. It's <laughs> what makes us Italian. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's why it's so weird in, in Italy. But the uh, the, the mayor, uh, Chiara Appendino, uh, I don't know if I pronounced that right, um, of the populist five-star movement, uh, announced plans to make Turin, Italy's first vegetarian city. Uh, the exact details of the five-year plan have yet to be fleshed out, but the city is expected to set up educational projects and schools to teach students about animal welfare and nutrition. Also plans to create a vegetarian map of the city for tourists. So there you go, Doug, this is the tourism angle.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and introduce a weekly meat-free day. Uh, "Quote: The promotion of vegan and vegetarian diets is a fundamental act in safeguarding our environment, the health of our citizens, and the welfare of our animals, which is patently <laughs> wrong." Does uh, it just cracks me up? I mean, but you know, it's it's clear to us because we study and, and understand the uh, the material around the difference between uh, full on veganism and a and a balanced diet, which includes. Uh, you know, fat and, and protein and understanding the, uh, the esoteric implications of the natural cycle, uh, and the way that, it, the, that we live in this world. Um, but you know, so it seems really ridiculous to hear people say this, but it's, this is one of these, uh, my side versus your side kind of things where one side says they're right. And the other side says, no, you're wrong. I'm right. And there is no middle ground. Um, and I think the, uh, you know, that's a that's a big uh marker of the uh the vegan world. Vegetarians maybe not so much. I, I know some vegetarians who are chill people and they're mm-hmm. not like militant, but most of the people I know who are who are full on vegan are, are pretty militant about it. It's like once you cross that threshold then mm-hmm. there's no going back.
3: It's a religion. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So Turin, come back to us.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: so well i guess that's maybe a good segue in with you know talking about the uh the welfare of of animals um into the (laughs) pet health segment for today uh we're coming up on the end of our show um Zoya has a segment uh, which covers several interesting animal health-related news items, Uh, so going with our theme of connecting the dots in the news recently. uh, Let's check this out, and when we come back, we'll wrap it up.
7: Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya. And today, I'm going to share with you several interesting animal-related news items. First news item is about pigs and gut flora and how it relates to our health as well. An international consortium recently analyzed stool samples from 287 pigs representing different breeds and selected pig lines from 11 different farms in France, China, and Denmark. In total, the researchers identified 7.7 million genes and identified a large number of known and unknown bacteria. The results showed clear country-dependent differences, reflecting differences in farm systems, and antibiotic supplementation. The results further illustrate how age, gender, and pig genetics are associated with differences in the composition of bacteria in the gut. Importantly, the results also show how the uh, prohibition of the use of antibiotics as growth promotants in Denmark and France seems to have reduced the load of antibiotic resistance genes in the French and Danish pigs. But still, pigs in these countries harbor genes uh, conferring resistance to a large number of antibiotics. The detailed knowledge of the many genes in the gut bacteria will not only be of importance in, in order to use pigs as a model to elucidate the role of bacteria in relation to many human diseases, but will also be an important tool in the quest toward more sustainable knowledge-based pig farming with a need to combine feed efficiency with resistance to disease while reducing the use of antibiotics, a main concern in relation to risks of multidrug resistance in humans and animals. Speaking of antibiotics, some time ago there was a talk in the news that oregano essential oil has very effective antibacterial properties and that administering uh, oregano oil to chickens along with traditional antibiotics The dose of antibiotic needed to control infection was lowered. Also, the addition of oregano oil caused the chickens to uh, show fewer side effects to uh, antibiotics. Another study showed that oregano oil was effective against several types of bacteria. They even concluded that a commercial blend of oregano oils, rosemary oils and others could be used in the place of antibiotics in the feed of chickens. So, this is a very good news for chickens. But what about cats and dogs? Can oregano be used instead of antibiotics on them as well? The truth is that no one knows for sure how effective oregano is against bacteria in cats and dogs. No one knows what kind of dosage could be potentially effective. But one news site did some checking and here are their findings. There are some natural vets who believe that using oregano essential essential oil topically on an infected skin lesion could be helpful. However, what they have found is that this oil really stinks when used on cats or dog skin. Also, if it it is placed on the skin of an animal, they are likely to lick it and end up with burns on the tongue or mouth. In one report, A cat had severe burns on his scrotum because of the contact with oregano oil. If oregano oil is given orally to cats and dogs, it can cause burns inside inside their mouth and serious digestive problems. There have been several reports of cats who refused to eat for several days after being given oregano oil by mouth. The bottom line is, even if there is no doubt that oregano oil has beneficial properties, you should exercise caution and not use use it on your pets without first consulting with your veterinarian. And speaking of other possibly harmful things for your pets, there is a study that looked at possible cause for uh, hyperthyroidism in cats. This study looked at something called PBDEs, or polybrominated diphenyl ethers. And despite this complicated name, there is no doubt that you also have something like this in your house. So what are PBDs? PBDs are chemicals that are used as a flame retardant. They can be found in many places in our house, including our furniture, electronics, and building materials. But more importantly, uh, there are a lot of flame-retundant PBD chemicals in dust. As it happens years ago, it used to be very uncommon for a cat to be diagnosed with hyperthyroidism. It was around thirty years ago that veterinarians started to see an increase in the number of cats that were diagnosing uh, that were diagnosed with hyperthyroidism. Coincidentally, it was about thirty years ago that we started to use BBDs as a flame retardant chemical in household items. The uh, PBDs are thought to accumulate in the thyroid gland and make it more likely to develop a thyroid tumor. But why dust, you may ask? It is believed that dust affects cats greatly because they are constantly grooming themselves and ingesting dust particles, and they also like to, you know, lie around places where a hand uh, can't reach. So what can be done? Well, beside cleaning your house regularly, perhaps try to lead a more natural life or at least feed your cat with a natural food in order to minimize the damage since there are PBDEs found in dry food as well. There is also another possible solution, but you'll have to consult with your natural veterinarian about it first. Another study has found that there is a connection between hyperthyroidism and vitamin B12 levels. The cats with hypothyroidism has significantly lower B12 levels, apparently. Veterinarians know for a while now that uh, B12 levels can be lowered in cats with inflammatory bowel disease, but now there is a proof that it affects endocrine system as well. So perhaps it is worth looking into supplementing with B12 in order to treat the disease. Or again, make sure to feed your cat uh, with species-appropriate diet and supplement supplement with B12 naturally. Last news item has to do with cows and their spots. A research study looked at possible reasons for cows to have spots, and they think that the reason is to act as a fly repellent. To do this study, they set set out boards covered in glue. The boards uh, had uh, varying amounts of spots. Uh, They then watched as flies landed on the boards and got stuck to the glue. What they found was that the boards that had the highest number of small spots had the fewest number of flies. Next, they actually covered cows in glue and measured how many flies stuck to them. Consistently, the cows with lots of small spots had fewer flies. Dark uh, dark brown, solid cows attracted the most flies. They believe that the reason for this has something to do with how flies look for water. The flies need water in order to lay their eggs. They detect water by looking for something called polarized light. And for some reason, dark cattle uh, fur polarizes light differently and is much more attractive to flies. So, should we all be wearing spotted shirts when we go outside? According to the researchers, this tactic may actually work to keep flies away. However, he states that this won't work for mosquitoes as they don't follow the same rules. How unfortunate. Well, this is it for today. Hope you found the segment interesting and have a great weekend.
0: All right.
3: Thank you. So,
0: yeah, (laughs) that
2: was interesting about the cow spots.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> well, thanks. Yeah, thanks, so I have, uh We always appreciate your input on every show. Um, and I think that we uh, have hit our time for today. So I have a <clears throat> quick recipe. Excuse me. I guess frog in my throat, oh. throat today. <laughs> um, yeah, Is that it's a uh, yeah, throat frog. <laughs> <laughs> braised, braised throat frog in a uh,
1: hollandaise
0: <laughs> <house>. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, given that we were talking about the upcoming uh, flu season and vaccine season and all that um, and uh, trying to tie in the ketogenic diet to that I figured we could revisit bone broth um, mm. <clears throat> I know we've talked about it before and a lot of our listeners make bone broth I found some interesting tips that I had never uh, tried before and I, I still have not tried these. So this is, uh, I'm, I, I intend to try this out as soon as I can. Um, cause I've always taken the bones, add a little bit of salt and pepper, you know, put them in the crock pot, do low and slow for like a day. Uh, maybe a, a dash of vinegar to help draw the collagen out of the bones and then, uh, and then do that, you know, and then like flavor it and use it afterwards. However, uh, this recipe that I found, it was basically called bone broth. You're doing it wrong. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: And uh, they say one common mistake is skipping a blanching step. Because if you're making good bone broth, you're using natural bones, which have some kind of a funky flavor elements to it. Most people refer to it as gamey. Um, And if you blanch the bones at the beginning, you can get rid of a lot of that. So it's, basically to boil them aggressively, like at an aggressive rolling boil for 20 minutes uh, at the very beginning. And then you drain all of that off. Um, And then the second step is roasting the bones. So after doing the blanch, they suggest putting the bones into the oven uh, very high, like 450 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm not sure what that is Celsius. Um, So, but, you know, pretty high, uh, and then uh, you want to roast them for uh, give or take 30 minutes. They say that a quick 15 minutes won't do. You really want to take them right up to the edge of almost being too bu- too done uh, so that they have some uh, kind of burnt crispy edges uh, from the roasting process. That still doesn't destroy the good elements that are in the bones. Basically what that does is add a deep uh, flavor to them. So, that when you've blanched the bones, you've removed the gaminess off of the top, and then you roast them and you add kind of a deep flavor to it. Um, then, to go to the simmering process, another common mistake they say during simmering is to add too much stuff uh, to the broth. They said uh, it's best to keep the flavor focused and concentrated and um, worry about trying flavor alternatives like after it's done basically just some a few choice things like onions garlic and black pepper and that's it you know and then like salt it to taste later do all those things later but just make the very basic broth first um with uh, onions garlic and pepper and kind of see how you feel about it from there uh and then the last step uh was um letting it cool uh slowly is apparently a common mistake because that can invite the growth of uh, bacteria so, they recommend to, uh, once you're done with your broth, um, basically, uh, create like an ice bath or something that you can put the pot in to help it cool more slowly. And you can also add salt, uh, to the water around the pot that you're cooling it in. And the salt will actually help to conduct the heat away from the pot and help it to cool off, uh, quick, more quickly and efficiently. Um, hmm. so those were the three, the three tips that I thought were kind of interesting. Basically, blanch at the beginning. Uh, rolling boil for about 20 minutes, uh, then roast at a high temperature until they're kind of crispy and burnt on the edges. Uh, Don't add too much stuff uh, to the simmering. Uh, Simmer them for quite a long time and then cool uh, quickly and efficiently when you're done. And that will result in a very flavorful uh, bone broth. Hmm. So, yeah, I think I'm going to try that out.
1: Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Seems like a lot more work than just... Throwing some bones in a pot.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it
6: does. Yeah,
0: I'm curious about the roasting thing. I think that I can see how that would add some good flavor. And I, I have in the past had that issue with like the gamey broth, where you just throw the bones right in there and go from this from the beginning. I think the blanching makes sense.
2: Yeah, there's nothing Uh, worse than a gigantic pot of bad bone broth.
6: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. When I was in the restaurant industry, we would always roast the bones first. It was, like, oh, required. Really? You would never just okay. use raw bones, yeah, just because it helps to kind of develop flavor. Um, sure. Yeah, you get a darker stock out of it. Like, even chicken bones, you get kind of a more dark stock out of it when you roast them. Sure. Real good.
0: Cool. All right. Well, definitely going to try that out. Um, so that's our show for today. Uh, thanks for everybody uh for tuning in and uh, for our chat participants uh, for taking part in the uh, in the chat there today, really appreciate you guys listening. Um, we will be back next week with a new topic, uh, and be sure to check out the SOT radio show on Sunday at uh, noon Eastern time, <clears throat> or check out radio.sot.net on Sunday to see the airtime in your local time zone.
5: Take care.
1: Bye, Bye everybody. Bye, everybody.